for solving the problems are knowledge and understanding, know the facts, but see how they fit in the big picture. new podcast Labor ins Ohr. My name is Christoph and my name is Bernd. In the last episode we gave an overview over the history of scientific publishing from its beginnings in the early 17th century and the developments of the 20th century that led to highly profitable publishing businesses on the one hand but also to a serials crisis with rising costs for libraries on the other hand. Yes, exactly. And this is where we left you with quite a cliffhanger because when the scientific publishing became more and more expensive until a point where they got so expensive that libraries couldn't subscribe anymore because they couldn't pay the, the fees for all the journals. So they were stuck in a big, big problem, which is also called the serials crisis. Nevertheless, an opposition against this behavior formed. And this will be the topic of our whole episode of today, the open access movement. The modern version started in the 90s although an early form of open access had already been put into practice by the societies in the early days of publishing. But at first, briefly, what is open access? The movement tries to make scientific knowledge freely accessible and reusable for everyone inside and outside the academic community. But in reality, it is not as easy as it seems, because there are many different types of open access publications. So, like you already said, it's not that easy when it comes to practice, because open access does not automatically mean open access. Because instead of charging the reader, as it is done with the other, the subscription-based model, some of these open access journals charge the authors a fee for processing and publication of their article. A different alternative for this would be that the authors publish themselves uh, their articles or a preprint of the article in repositories. So you might know archive or bioarchive. And a third model would be to still publish the article in a full access journal, but either of the certain time which is called an embargo period the article gets open access or the authors pay again a fee in order to make the article open access so you can already see with each model also a few downsides come and one might say there is always a price you have to pay 
And the only exception is probably the so-called diamond open access, where neither the reader nor the author has to pay for a full open access article. But instead, the publishing is funded by external donors. Yes, and there is a lot going on behind the scenes of scientific publishing. And although not present in the discussion of the general public, the outcomes are already affecting scientists. Therefore, I would like to introduce two of them, as we're going to talk about them in the upcoming interview with Professor Björn Brems. The first one is Project Deal, where the most important scientific institutions of Germany united to negotiate with publishers as one single organization. They tried to make more transparent contracts to allow the members open access publications, as well as access to their literature. These negotiations have led to contracts with, uh, for example, Wiley or Springer Nature, but failed negotiations with Elsevier, however, have also led to an exclusion from accessing their papers. This, for example, affected me personally. I cannot read all articles from Elsevier anymore. And many papers from a journal like Cell, for example, are behind a paywall for me. And Cell is not just any journal, but is one of the most impactful journals there is in biology. A second movement is the so-called Coalition S, which tries to make a change from the research funding side. It started with funding agencies from Europe, but has nowadays members and supporters around the world, from Canada to South Africa, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization. In their so-called Plan S, They mandate scientists that get funding from them to publish their work in an open access journal without embargo to make it accessible as it is right when it gets published. Yeah, and now it's time for me to introduce our guest of today. He's a real expert in the open access area. He shares his opinions in his highly recommendable blog where he discusses the current developments in open access. He was and is editorial board member of several open access journals such as PLOS ONE or PeerJ. Apart from that, he's also a specialist for Drosophila behavior and this is what he does for a living. He's a professor for neurogenetic at the University of Regensburg. He has published articles But not only about Drosophila, also about the challenges in academia, for example, what makes good science and how to improve scientific peer review. Let me welcome very much Björn Brems. Hi, thanks for having me. And also a warm welcome on my behalf. You have been part in the open science movement for over 15 years. 
But in an older article on your blog over four years ago, you already mentioned that there is too much talking and too little action in the open science community. Therefore, I have two questions for you. First of all, what caused the frustration that led to this article? And second, why are you still talking to us now in this podcast? <laughs> Good questions. Um, what caused the frustration? The frustration was caused essentially by 10 years uh, giving presentations and talks with the same content. Essentially, if you go and pick a talk, a set of slides, uh, or any other presentation that uh, I did 10, 15 years ago now, 2006, 7, 8, or 9, um, I'm saying the same things. It means that in those 10, 15 years, not really anything has changed. And so I decided after about 10, 11 years of traveling across the globe that no, I'm not going to travel anymore. It's too much time, right? I mean, if I give a talk in Brazil, uh, which I've had, which was one of my last travels, uh, you travel for f anything between 24 and 48 hours for a, for a, for a 50-minute talk or 45-minute talk. This is just not very efficient. And so I decided, okay, no more travel for that sort of thing. And that just saves a lot of time. And so I have time left over now to talk to you about these things because I don't have to travel to do that. I essentially now only attend events where I think something comes out of it. So if it is an, an event of an organization that I think has some political power or a, an event where I think decision makers listen and pay attention to what is happening such that whatever comes out of that event may change decisions, then I'm still inclined to participate. But for all those other things where it's really just information dissemination, um, I'm trying to get out of that. Okay. You were talking about decision makers and this actually brings us right to our first point because there have been actually some initiatives going on. We already mentioned the project deal and the plan S in our introduction. So my first question would be here maybe as a more general question. What do you think uh, is the potential? What could be the benefit of an initiative like the Project Deal? Well, Project Deal has all the prerequisites to make everything worse. Because uh, the main thing, if, it boil, if you boil it down, the main thing that Project Deal is doing, Project Deal is trying to replace a set of contracts Uh, subscription contracts that were nearly impossible to cancel. And because each publisher has a monopoly on their content, you, you can't just go to some another, other publisher and buy the content there. Um, the only way you can exert any price pressure or any kind of argument towards the monopoly holder is to cancel the subscription. And so this was nearly impossible until developments, technical developments, such as the browser plugin on paywall or um, 
uh, Sci-Hub or um, I'm using a plugin also that's uh, called Copernio. That used to be called Copernio. Now it's called something else because the company changed its name, but I forgot what it was. And so these sort of technical, uh, the open access button and OADUI and these sorts of things that allow you to find open access copies of articles that are nominally behind a paywall. And so because uh, these things now exist, subscriptions have become redundant. You don't necessarily need subscriptions anymore to access the content. And so what is Deal doing? Deal is saying, okay, um, let's replace these contracts and let them run out to put pressure on the publishers. Deal didn't renew many of those contracts. And faced with this loss of income, the publisher said, okay, let's negotiate. And what is it that Deal wants to have? Deal wants to replace the read subscriptions with published subscriptions. And the transition is what they call publish and read. So it's quite obvious by the name that this is precisely what they want. Uh, and it essentially, in the end, what they want is they want to get rid of the read subscriptions and have a published subscription. But of course, um, what is worse for a scientist not to be able to read or not to be able to publish. So is it read or rot or is it publish or perish? So clearly it's publish or perish. And so replacing a contract or a set of contracts that now finally we have a way of canceling with a set of contracts that there's no way of canceling them because canceling a publish subscription is much, much worse for every author than canceling a read subscription. Right now, if you cancel a read subscription, what that means is that if you can't get an article, it means you have to click three times more compared to when you have a subscription. That's the worst that happens. And that was sufficient uh, for libraries not to cancel subscriptions. So that's uh, quite uh, interesting in itself. But now, of course, if your institution does not have a published subscription with a publisher that's important to you, let's say Nature. That means then without that subscription, it's not just a few more clicks to get published in Nature. No, it's 10,000 euros that you have to pay to publish in Nature. So clearly that's dramatically worse. So essentially what Deal is doing, Deal is cementing the power of the current publishers because they're not talking to everybody, they just talk to the powerful publishers. And they're... Uh, trying to make things worse in that they replace, they try to replace, and successfully so, in, in three out of four major publishers, um, to replace bad contracts with even worse contracts that are essentially give more power to the publishers and make it even more impossible for us to exert any pressure on the publisher so they can start, charge whatever they want. And 10,000 euros is just the start. Uh, with these, If these kinds of contracts um, are being closed and made and, and uh, signed all over the world, it'll be 20 or 30,000 euros per article because how, what should we do? I mean, we have to pay because we publish or perish. So they can under, they could already charge whatever they wanted and they did charge what they wanted about fourfold on top of, subs of um, consumer price index or inflation. Um, it'll be much more than that uh, if you have publish subscriptions. And uh, already now, when there aren't such published subscriptions, when you still pay by the article, so to say, as an author, already now we can see 
that in the last 10 years, uh, prices have risen for these so-called article processing charges, um, also uh, well above inflation. So we already see what's happening without such published subscriptions. And so uh, when these published subscriptions come, it'll be even worse than that. Okay, so access is no problem, but there is a second coalition, the Coalition S, that is more focused on the publishing and the financing of science. Do you think this coalition could be a way to more open science? Yeah, this is also, so in principle, yes. So in principle, they have a smart idea. The idea is that, well, um, we are the funding agencies. So Coalition S is a group of uh, European, initially European, and now some other funding agencies that essentially say, okay, if you take money from us, you have to publish open access. The idea is old. The first, this is called an open access mandate. Uh, the first open access mandate, I think, came from the NIH, or the one that I'm aware of, came from the NIH, the American National Institutes of Health, um, and stipulated that if you get NIH money, you have to make to publish things open access. And uh, what that ended up with was that uh, you publish where you want, and the NIH takes their own money and uh, publishes a copy of your work after 12 months in their own publishing place called PubMed Central, uh, which is uh, kind of interesting in that you keep the publisher work going, you pay the publishers, and then uh, you make a copy of it available to everybody else later, which tells you a little bit about the power that these publishers have if you do that sort of weird, that weird kind of thing with double publishing, one's in this place and one's in that place. Um, and so this is an old idea, this mandate. And uh, essentially what Plan S was trying to do is say, oh, we can do what NIH has been has, been, has done 12 or whatever, 10 years ago at the time when they started thinking about this. We can do what the NIH does just better. As is often the case in the transatlantic, you know, some benign, very benign transatlantic rivalry. Um, and uh, we won't have any PubMed Central, even though there, is, there exists, of course, European PubMed Central. Uh, but what I was trying to say is that we don't do things. We want to really change something. We don't want to just keep things going. We want to really transform something. And so they added some additional conditions that uh, makes it more difficult for authors, essentially. It just uh, authors have more trouble under Plan S to publish where they want uh, than under an open under the open access mandate from the NIH, for example. And uh, the problem here, again, is that they're aiming for something that we already have. We already have access. So, again, they're not really changing a whole lot. What they're doing is they're putting pressure on authors that they because and the pressure of authors comes because many of the journals where one has to publish to not perish <laughs> um, many of those places are not open access journals and so the authors complain hey do you want to risk my that i risk my career and the publishers say well do you want to risk the careers of the young scientists how dare you uh, and so It's a little bit weird that the funding agencies of Coalition S pick 
the weakest link, the authors, the least powerful in this whole system to exert pressure, which is kind of hard to understand because these funders are very, very powerful. So if I, I recently um, sat in a faculty council meeting where it was discussed that our funding agency in Germany, the DFG, the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, they had said that for next generation sequencing machines, what you need is a core facility. And they specify very clearly you need whatever it was. I think it was two technical staff, two scientific staff, full time and uh, uh, f uh, not on fixed term, permanent positions. All right, so four permanent positions and you need certain technical equipment and that sort of thing. Otherwise, you don't even need to apply for a next generation sequencing grant. And so they essentially, these funding agencies, they dictate who can apply for grants. And so what they could have done is of course say, okay, we want, if, if it's really true that uh, they would like to see open science happening such that um, and the DFG, for instance, has uh, a new guide, has new guidelines now for good scientific practice, and they want open science to happen. They want that the money that they spend is spent on reliable science, so that people can check are the data okay, is the code okay. So open data and open source are things that are really important, uh, at least they say. Uh, and of course, um, the accessibility of the work that they fund, be they being publicly funded. Uh, it's also something that uh, they write in many publications that this is important to them. So what would keep them from saying, okay, well, let's not put even more pressure on the precariously employed, especially here in Germany, we now know the Twitter hashtag, Ich bin Hanna, right? And so essentially what... Um, the coalition S funders are doing is putting even more pressure on the Hanas of this uh, scientific enterprise than they already uh, than they already experience. Yeah, this was also a fear many people had when this uh, when Plan S was talked. Right, that uh, only those who already have good funding and have the the funds to pay such high charges uh, can then continue. Uh, with publishing in those high-impact journals. Exactly. And so they've, they've modified. So Plan S, has, the, the people working at Plan S are good people. They're well-intentioned. And also the deal people are, in principle, all well-intentioned. They are more on our side than on the publisher's side. Not necessarily all of them, but uh, on average and by and large, I would say. Um, but you know, some of them don't realize that the publishers currently are really our opponents. They're not really partners. And uh, some people have a hard time acknowledging that fact. But in general, they all, they're on our side and they're on the side of publicly funded science. And so they're doing their best and they have the best intentions. But as uh, the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, and so uh, the reasons why they choose the policies they choose are a matter that I can only speculate about because I'm not privy to this information and I don't sit in their meetings. Um, so I won't I won't publicly speculate uh, on their motivations, why they chose to go after the weakest link in this whole system. But what I would would suggest is that uh, uh, that they should be asked the question 
and I have asked the questions, but other people should do that too, why they're not going after the institutions that keep the system running, right? So there's nothing in principle, it may be complicated, it may be politically difficult, um, but there's nothing in principle that keeps the funding agencies from saying, okay, if you still pay subscriptions, because open access is one of the things that they want, if you still pay subscriptions, and keep this is what keeps the paywalls going, right? Is subscriptions. If you still pay subscriptions as an institution, then you're not eligible to apply for funding. That's a very simple thing. So if funding agencies really want to get rid of subscriptions, why not do that? And that would really meet, hit the publishers where it hurts, the money. Because if, uh, if authors stop submitting to the journals, what would be the problem? As long as the subscriptions keep flowing, why would the publishers care if they, uh, let's say, Nature has only um, reported articles on uh, science that happens elsewhere as long as the money comes in? Why would they care what the content is? They don't care. Okay. Yeah, this answers actually already one of my questions. So, like, when open access was was new or when the internet was new, everybody was thinking, okay, that will be the, the death of the publishers because, oh my God, everybody can access everything for free then. But actually the opposite turned out with paywalls and uh, charges for, for uh, first uh, the subscriptions rising and now what we can see now, uh, the, the article processing charges rising. So my question would have been, what what do you think can we do? I mean, you've already answered it, but do you think there is more to it than just stopping the subscriptions? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the thing is really we have to stop paying for a system that keeps the journals running. Now, one might I ask, so before I answer that question completely, I should add that in the experimental sciences, there's fairly, for me, convincing, and initially it was surprising, but now it doesn't surprise me anymore. Uh, there was fairly convincing evidence that the um, experimental research published in the most prestigious journals uh, is actually the least reliable research. So publish or perish, as we talked, means that uh, you have to publish in certain journals if you don't want to perish. And those journals very often are not open access journals yet. And they also happen to be the journals that publish the least reliable science. Now, this is something that too few people are aware of, this evidence that shows that, for instance, the sample size in these journals is too low um, and that uh, there is not enough randomization, that certain criteria for good scientific practice are met less often in these art journals than in other journals, that so there are more mistakes. Uh, so if you quantify, if you just count the number of mistakes and errors that you find in these journals, and this, uh, the number of these errors is also higher in these journals than in other journals. And so if you take all of this evidence together, it means that those people that publish in these journals publish more unreliable research than those in other journals. And so if at the same time, those people who publish in these journals are also the ones that stay in science and uh, are rewarded for publishing there, and the people who publish the reliable science in the other journals get kicked out, that means, of course, that if you do that over 30 years, as we have been doing, it's perhaps no surprise that in some replication 
experiments that we do, only half, or in the case, for instance, in cancer research, only 10% of the research that they want to replicate is actually replicable. And so because of this incentive of publishing unreliable research in prestigious journals, I think it's paramount that we have to stop uh, these journals from continuing uh, to deteriorate the reliability of science. And so we have to stop paying subscriptions, but we also have to stop paying APCs. What we should be doing instead is something very similar to what most recently the European Union has done. They have uh, uh, started a tender, a bidding process, where they said, oh, we, uh, for our Horizon 2020 research program and all the other following programs, we want to have a publishing platform. Not a journal, a publishing platform. And uh, we are looking for a publisher that can do that for us. And so a lot, lots of publishers have said, no, we can do it, no, we can do it, no, we can do it, uh, and have submitted their bids. And they chose a publisher called F1000 Research to host and service their platform. Well, actually, I don't know if they host it. Those are details that uh, I haven't really checked, and it's, it's not really relevant. But at least uh, they have a provider for the next couple of years that run uh, Open Research Europe, ORE or OR. And um, this, the EU is not the first funder that does that. Uh, it's a bunch of other platforms that have done that. And they're all hooked up together on a platform called Open Research Central or ORC. That's an independent platform, uh, a nonprofit organization. Uh, that, but that sprung out of uh, F1000 Research, but that is now uh, ind an independent nonprofit organization with its independent board governing it. Uh, and so if every institution, not just funding agencies, if every institution would do that and funding agencies would require, for instance, oh, so if, if uh, the funding agency has an eligibility requirement, right? And it says, if you pay subscriptions, you're not eligible for funding. If you don't have a platform on ORC, like we have, um, you're not eligible for funding. And if you don't have a data repository, you're not eligible for funding. If you don't have a GitLab repository for the code, for the source code to uh, ensure open source for all of your scientific software and code, then you're not eligible for funding. Then very quickly, every institution, every university, every research organization would have one of those platforms on ORC. And we would have one central place uh, on a decentralized infrastructure, one central place where you could find all scientific literature and eventually also data and code uh, uh, connected to it. And uh, every institution would host their own little part of that. But for the user, for the reader, for instance, it would be it would not be uh, immediately obvious unless we make it so, but it would not be immediately obvious on which of those platforms, which particular article or data set was hosted. Um, but wouldn't this uh, contradict the publication freedom, one of the main themes of uh, scientific publishing? So you would f have to force every scientist to publish there in this central hub uh, where it's also controllable for everyone. Yeah, no, you, of course you wouldn't force people. People can still publish in science or nature if that still exists, but they would have to pay the 10,000 euros out of their pocket. You weren't allowed to use public money to do that. So if you happen to have... Uh, 10,000 euros lying around on your bank account, then you can publish there. 
but it's like now. I mean, if I want to publish a book the, and I'd go to the university and say, hey, can you pay 200,000 euros so can I publish in all my open access book? The university was just going to laugh me straight in the face, right? But on the other hand, they paid 2 million euros for subscriptions. So we already um, don't treat every publication venue equally. So if you would take uh, the German constitution, the Grundgesetz of uh, academic freedom literally, then I would be free to publish my research in double-page advertisements on all the major newspapers in the world because I'm free to choose where I want to publish. So why should I not publish double-page advertisements in the New York Times and in the FAZ and uh, in any other newspaper around the world and then send the 9 million euro bill to my library? Why should I not do that? And so uh, everyone will tell you that this is a completely outrageous claim. But collectively, we pay $10 billion uh, every year for these publishers, and nobody questions it. It's just historical baggage. And so if you start to think about it that way, uh, you see that historically, we've never paid for anything where every someone wanted to publish. It's just historically grown that we publish there, and there's no reason to say, okay, we found a way that is about 10, 90% cheaper. So we would save, if we would do that sort of thing, we would save about 90% of the money. Um, so it's in the public interest that we offer this perfectly adequate, and in fact, in many cases, superior publishing platform that everybody can use for free. But if you choose to publish anywhere else, that is perfectly fine. That's your private business. If you want to do that, use your private money for that. But do you think that this will be accepted by the scientific community? I mean, there are already many open, accessible journals, but still everyone needs to publish in nature because it's the name that makes it necessary to publish there. Exactly. If we would have, so if we would have canceled subscriptions, let's say 10 years ago, like we should have, then uh, what do you think would have happened to nature? I, I assume they would have found an, a different way. Like also, they always reinvent their business models. Now, for example, what you've mentioned several times now, this uh, 10.000 euros uh, article processing charge, I guess this also refers to nature's recent yeah. idea. So I think they would have come up with yes, a different idea. Yes, but that idea. would have been problematic. Now it's more or less accepted. Ten years ago, that would have been very difficult to do because they wouldn't have been set up to do it. Ten years ago, they didn't have, so Springer Nature didn't have Biomed Central who, was the, who were set up to take article processing charges. And so now there is a real risk that any such, um, any such move that the publishers would survive it. Had we acted when we should have acted 10, 15 years ago, uh, my prediction would be that the publisher would just would have gone bankrupt. Because why would you try and subscribe to something uh, that nobody is is promoting and interested in anyway? So much of the money would have stopped flowing The publishers would have gone bankrupt and nature wouldn't exist anymore. And so if nature doesn't exist, then of course no 
university can ask you to publish in nature if it doesn't exist. Yeah, I think this brings us to a question many of our listeners have, which sounds maybe a little bit funny, but we're talking quite negative now about especially uh, Springer Nature, but also all the other big publishers. What benefit do we as the scientific community have from them? None. <laughs> no, they're parasites. They only take money out of the system and don't provide anything in return. Okay. Th thanks for this bold statement. I mean, I, I, I like the honest answer. And I think not everyone in the scientific community would speak out like that because we still have these dependencies. And yeah, I can I can tell you what they claim they do. So I was on a EU event, an, an online event recently where Ian Moss, he's the CEO of the STM Association, that's a publish, the, the Association of Scientific, Technical and Medical Publishers. And he took credit for the replication crisis. He said that they're the ones responsible for the quality in the research. So that's what they claim. So if they are correct, then these publishers are to blame for the replication crisis, right? Well, if they're not correct, then it means we are responsible because we are doing the editing. Most of the editors are scientists. We're doing the peer reviewing, essentially. If it's a peer, it means they're a scientist. That's what peer means. And all of this is done by us. And so either way you take it. So if the important thing that publishers are doing is maintaining the reliability of science, if that's true, then they're to blame for the replication crisis. And so we should get rid of them. And if it's not true, then they're not paying uh, attention uh, for the reliability of science. So we can get rid of them without any detrimental effect. And uh, everything else, I mean, you can see uh, our university, University of Regensburg, they are hosting four open access journals. You don't need publishers for that. So what is it that they do? They don't do anything. They don't even archive the articles appropriately. What they do is they pay other companies that uh, they will take over their uh, articles if they go bankrupt. So it's not that they pay into some fund and make sure everything. No, they also, they just pay another company to make sure that if they go bankrupt, the articles are still around. So uh, all of these things, there is what, what they claim they do is if it's correct, then we should get rid of it anyway. And if it's not correct, then we can get rid of it without any ill effect. So no, uh, in the grand scheme of things, we only pay them 10 billion euros uh, or dollars every year for essentially no added benefit whatsoever. Yeah, I understand. Now, let me ask you about those pure open access journals. Do you think that is the right way to go or do you rather see it as a tool which helps us pushing forward to the right direction uh, neither it goes in the wrong direction <laughs> okay. because uh, just look at uh, what would happen if all the 30,000 journals uh, would go open access without any change it would mean that not only do you have to bribe threaten or otherwise coax the editor of the top journals to publish your article, you'd also have to be rich to pay for it. So everything else, everything would be the same, 
as it is now for us researchers, uh, because access is not a problem. We have Unpaywall, we have these browser plugins and Sci-Hub and all of these things. So for us, access doesn't change. Uh, but now if you had a great idea at a poor institution and you publish a groundbreaking or you want to publish a groundbreaking research paper, you can do that. If everything goes pure open access and the authors have to pay for it, then you also have to be rich to publish it in nature and get a job in a prestigious institution that looks in these things. So no, uh, in fact, uh, the only thing that I can imagine being worse than subscriptions is a universal open access system that would really make everything even worse than it already is. Well, at least in my experience, almost every student seems to know how to gain access to almost every paper immediately. And as you already mentioned, Sci-Hub is maybe the most important platform now to gain uh, access to scientific papers, not only on an illegal basis, but also uh, because it's very easy to use. But uh, recently, Sci-Hub and Alexandra Elbakian, the woman who founded Sci-Hub, became under a lot of pressure. And for example, Twitter suspended the account of Sci-Hub. Yeah, and in India, there is also a Kurd a case going against it. What do you think about the recent developments? So I think where she is right now, she's fairly safe from any prosecution from uh, the publishers. Right? which is quite interesting that uh, the multi-billion dollar corporations are going after a graduate student academic uh, uh, that all her crimes are is making the knowledge of the world that the world pay for, paid for accessible to the world. So I think this is clearly uh, an abuse of uh, copyright legislation that is not in the public interest, but only in the private interest. And that in the interest of corporations that have a higher profit margin than Google or Apple or Amazon, who sport about, what, 25, 30%, and those publishers make over 40% uh, on their revenue in, in, in profits. And so uh, I don't think these uh, lawsuits that they bring will do much to stop Sci-Hub uh, from providing us with access to the literature. I think... Uh, what is a lot more disturbing is that we have now had access to the literature for almost 10 years, I would say. So seven or eight years, if you take all of these recent developments, not just Sci-Hub, but also the other uh, browser plugins, for instance, that help you find um, open access copies. Um, we've had those now for seven, eight years. They are the reason that Deal exists, right? This Deal uh, consortium in Germany can only exert pressure on the publishers because we can still keep working without subscriptions. That's the only reason Deal is still around. Sci-Hub, Unpaywall, all these other, I think there's about a dozen ways of getting an article now. And uh, they are the only reason Deal can exert pressure. And what concerns me a lot more than anything that has to do with Sci-Hub right now is that and deal is not the only one it's just a great example and I, and I happen to know it because it happens here in germany is that now that all of a sudden that these contracts these subscription contracts that have been impossible to cancel for 30 years now that all of a sudden they become cancelable now all of a sudden we have some market power now all of a sudden we can 
exert pressure. We have the freedom now. All of a sudden, we have the freedom to break away from the publishers and get ours get ourselves extricate ourselves of out of the stranglehold of the publishers, those parasites. And what does Deal do? Deal takes that power and wants to hand it right back to the publishers by replacing those published, those read subscriptions, those read contracts, first with publish and read contracts and then with publish contracts. So I find that um, a lot more concerning. What, I wonder, is going on in the minds of people at Deal who want to make a bad situation even worse and taking advantage of our newfound freedom to try to go back to a dependence, to a form of slavery, if you want, uh, or parasite-host relationship that we were just about to break out of. We were just about to get be able to get rid of the parasites. And the first thing that academia does is form a consortium that tries to get at, get back and get the parasites back and try to find a way to go back into this dependence. That's that kind of mindset. That worries me a lot more than what happens to Syab. It's this, this lack of competence, maybe. This lack of, I don't really know what it is, right? But I have to speculate. This lack of competence or this lack of vision to understand that contracts like Deal make things even worse than they were before. Now, I think publish, big deal publish contracts are perhaps not as worse, not as bad as universal open access where everyone, every author fights for themselves. But it just changes the problem and shifts it to a different level. In a universal open access situation where every author fights for themselves and every journal for themselves, so to say, um, every publisher for themselves, um, there... You just have to be a rich individual to succeed in science. In this situation, when you have big deals, you have to be at a rich institution to be successful in science. So it just shifts it from the individual to the institutions, but it still creates uh, and exacerbates any inequities uh, and injustices that we already have. Like we want to try to be as, as egalitarian in science as possible. Every idea should have the same value. And this is already not the case now, but with either universal open access individually or universal open access in terms of big deal institutional or consortial contracts, uh, you just keep increasing the inequities and the injustices and the differences between the rich and the poor uh, over what we have now. So either way you see it, these approaches all are uh, aiming to make things worse on the grand scheme of things, on the bottom line. So they may increase the stability of open access, for sure, if you don't have to rely on one single person to provide, in the case of Sayab, to provide open access uh, to the world. Um, then you stabilize it, but what at what cost? And so um, you could, you could uh, paraphrase deal also as uh, open access at all costs organization. And... I find the cost to benefit ratio is just gigantic. It's just a huge, huge cost for a really, really minuscule advantage. And I cannot see, I cannot understand and put myself into the shoes of the people who want to promote that, that 
you know, you, you make everything worse just to increase the accessibility uh, beyond what we have now. And in particular, if you look at the consequence of the journal system, which is that our research becomes less reliable. So I, I, I mentioned the replication project cancer research when they announced in, I think it was 2017, that they um, are aiming to replicate 50 results in high impact journals, in prestigious journals, 50 results in cancer research. And this project has now concluded and they've only managed to replicate five. And so, and this is a medically relevant research. So I wonder, is it really so smart to open up medical research that is only 10% reliable to patients, to doctors? Shouldn't we maybe first make sure that the literature we're opening up to patients and to doctors is reliable so that you don't have to replicate the results first in the lab to, un to know if the paper that you're reading is something that I could try and maybe implement on, on you know, desperate patients. Yeah, of, of course, that, that's a very true statement. But I think this opens up a whole new chapter. It would be great to talk with you further about this. I mean, the replication crisis is also a very, very big thing that what we are facing right now in science. But it feels like we're already have used a lot of your time. Thank you very much, Björn Brems. It was a pleasure to have you here, to hear your opinion about this whole big topic of open access. If we forgot to ask anything really important, now is the moment where you can jump in and let us have the last really takeaway message. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on. It was, it was, it was a pleasure talking to you. Um, I think I would conclude uh, by saying that uh, you were very correct in saying that the crisis in the reliability of our scholarly literature is actually the main problem that we're facing at this time. The second problem, the second biggest problem is, as we've talked about here now, is that the journal system that is fueling this replication crisis is also fueling an affordability crisis because it, because it costs 10 times more than it should have. And if we wouldn't pay the amount of monies that we pay, and only 10% of that like we should, then we would have about $9 billion every year to pay for modern functionalities that would help us combat the reliability crisis. Modern functionality that, for instance, would make it automatic uh, to publish data and code so that it would be easy to check it very quickly for those uh, areas where it's important. And so rather than access, which has been solved 10 years ago, at least temporarily for now, what we really should be focusing on now that the open access problem is solved, what we should be focusing on is those three problems, the reliability, the affordability, and the functionality of our literature. And if we do that in a smart way, for instance, by stop stopping to pay for journals and instead putting the money into our own platform platforms such that service providers can compete for these services, then, of course, these platforms would be open access because why would you not make them open access? So 
If you focus on reliability, affordability, and functionality, open access comes by itself because it would be unthinkable to not have it open access because it would even be more expensive to put a paywall there. So why would you do that? So focus on the important things. Open access happens by itself. Well, thank you also from my side. Uh, in our next episode, we will talk to the founder of SciHub, Alexandra Elbakian, about her life and uh, her view on the open access movement and her current struggles. Yes, exactly. So if you want to learn more about our podcast, the first address, of course, is our website. You can find us at www.laborinsohr.de. So there you can find additional links for the website we visited to, to gain our huge knowledge on these topics. You can also find information how to donate because, of course, we're poor scientists and we need your help. You can also find information how to donate to us. We appreciate it a lot. And you can follow us on Twitter at laborinsohr. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can also find a link with the from the RSS feed on our homepage. And you are listening to it right now. So you probably know where to find our podcast. So the most important thing would be sharing it with others. Yes, exactly. And on uh, Apple Podcasts, you can also give us feedback how you like this episode. We really appreciate it. Reach out to us if you have further questions or comments, recommendations. We're happy to talk with you and join the discussion on Twitter at Labor in Sport.